President Barack Obama's chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, once famously said, you'd never want a serious crisis to go to waste. What is the current crisis that the left seeks to take advantage of right now? Is it the coronavirus? Is it the death of a black man apparently caused by the knee of a white police officer jammed into that man's neck for eight minutes? Or is there something else at play that is causing and even allowing for riots, vandalism, destruction, and mayhem, the likes of which has never been seen before in the United States of America? Yes, it is something else. Buckle up, my friends. This is Hidden Headlines, and I'm your host, Brian Sussman. The left is an incredibly well-run and well-funded machine, and the whole entity all seems to work perfectly together for the same goals. Those goals are, at the least, a total transformation of America— and at the most, a total destruction of America as we know it. Trying to determine its leader is pretty much futile, leading many like me to believe there are spiritual forces in dark places seemingly running their operation. So that's the left. On the right, the collection of players are more loose-knit. They're known for their sharp elbows and rugged independence, some of it coming from rigid ideological stances on various conservative issues, and some of it from a standpoint of maintaining funding. But the right doesn't have a vicious army like the left does. As a primary example, I'm talking about Antifa, a group we've been seeing a lot of during this time of the George Floyd protests. Antifa is a revolutionary Marxist anarchist militia movement that seeks to bring down the United States by means of violence and intimidation. I repeat that. They seek to bring down the United States by means of violence and intimidation. From everything I can determine, their leadership is predominantly white. Their name is actually pronounced Antifa, not Antifa, Antifa. It's a shortened form of the term anti-fascist. They have a website which serves as their news blog. It's called itsgoingdown.org. I'm going to read from the website. Here's what they say about themselves. In the United States, most anti-fascist activists are anarchist, although a few are Maoist or anti-state Marxists. The U.S.-based anarchists of Antifa typically denounce not only the capitalistic economic system, but the institution of government itself, and they explicitly advocate and encourage the use of violence to undermine and destroy both. I recall this one very, very well. It was Antifa, first time I really ever heard of them. It was 2017, August 27th, UC Berkeley here in California. I had my radio show at the time. A large group of Antifa Marxists and anarchists gave voice to their desire to permanently wipe the United States off the face of the earth. Friends, they were serious about this. They were conveying their rejection of President Donald Trump's proposed construction of a border wall designed to thwart illegal immigration to the United States. 
This was their chant. This was their war cry in 2017. It was no Trump, no wall, no USA at all. No Trump, no wall, no USA at all. Because Antifa rejects the legitimacy of America's very existence, the movement likewise contends, by extension, that the people who are entrusted with protecting and preserving the nation's civil society are illegitimate as well. So we're talking about law enforcement and the military. Thus, itsgoingdown.org firmly instructs Antifa activists to build a culture of non-cooperation with law enforcement. If you have any intention of working with the police, FBI, or other agencies, it elaborates, or if you publicly condemn anti-fascists who break the law, don't call yourself an anti-fascist. Again, I'm reading directly from the website. Because... Antifa is a movement with no centralized leadership. Its constituents typically group themselves into autonomous local cells. Some of these cells meet only sporadically to strategize and plan future events. Others meet frequently, several times a week. These activists communicate and recruit mostly through social media using Facebook, Facebook as their principal forum for organizing protests, which I find rather amazing. I was once privately contacted by a Facebook employee who was an avid listener to my radio show in San Francisco. He told me how Facebook had specifically limited my reach on its platform because as the only live and local conservative talk show host in San Francisco, somebody in management found my views intolerable. But with Antifa, obviously Facebook has no problem. It's difficult to trace most of Antifa's funding sources with any degree of specificity. Many have tried. Some publications have suggested that a financial connection exists between Antifa and the multi-billionaire George Soros. That may be the case, but we can't prove it. But whatever money the movement does receive from high-profile financiers like Soros or various charitable foundations... It makes its way to the group through very circuitous paths. This is because few people, if any, want to risk tarnishing their own reputations by openly supporting hordes of violent radicals. Right now, obviously, Antifa is on the warpath, supposedly because a white cop killed a black man. We've seen the video. It's horrible. But Antifa is playing the Rom Emanuel card, never let a serious crisis go to waste. Ultimately, their warpath is designed to drive public sentiment against Donald Trump for now, to make sure he does not get elected, to bring in an administration that is more in tune with the goal of total transformation. That's why the established media, who's a part of this entire cabal, is not calling Antifa and other groups out for the mayhem we've seen in recent weeks. Public buildings ransacked, causing taxpayers millions. Private businesses pillaged. Countless smaller businesses forced to call it quits. Thousands of people physically injured. A black federal officer killed in Oakland. A former St. Louis police officer, also black, killed by rioters. 
and the media remains silent on the majority of these crimes. But I believe Antifa or Antifa or whatever you want to call them, just like the talking heads in the media, are simply pawns being played by some very powerful brokers in high places. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But another group being played is Black Lives Matter. The Black Lives Matter movement began in July 2013 when George Zimmerman was acquitted of fatally shooting Trayvon Martin, who was a 17-year-old unarmed black teenager. Martin was killed by Zimmerman as he was walking from a convenience store to his father's home in Sanford, Florida, where he was visiting. Zimmerman, a self-proclaimed neighborhood watchman, called the local police department, mentioned there had been burglaries in the neighborhood, and said he had observed a real suspicious guy. That was his quote. A real suspicious guy who was up to no good. The police dispatcher told Zimmerman his security services were not needed. But Zimmerman left his vehicle, leading to a violent confrontation between himself and Martin. Zimmerman, as you recall, fatally shot Martin at close range and later claimed to police that Martin had assaulted him and he shot Martin in self-defense. And that was the basis of his acquittal. And at that point in time, all hell broke loose. If you'll recall, it was then activist and current co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, a woman named Alicia Garza. She did a post on Facebook that said this, Black people, I love you. I love us. Our lives matter. That was the post. Patrice Cullors, a fellow activist and co-founder of Black Lives Matter, followed up Garza's post with a social media hashtag, Black Lives Matter. That was the three-word slogan that began to trend. The movement gained national ground a year later in 2014 with the death of Eric Garner. You remember this one? Gardner, a black man, detained by New York City police for suspicion of selling cigarettes on Staten Island's sidewalks. Police officer Daniel Pantaleo subdued Gardner and choked him against the pavement as witnesses videotaped and recorded Gardner repeatedly saying, I can't breathe. Gardner was a 43-year-old father of six. He was pronounced dead in a hospital. The Black Lives Matter hashtag has continued since then to be used to protest what the movement perceives as the unequal administration of justice with regard to, in particular, the killing of African-Americans by white police officers or others claiming to act in a law enforcement capacity. While the movement enjoys broad support for sure, it has evolved into something beyond the scope of those three words, Black Lives Matter. The co-founders of the Black Lives Matter Foundation, Garza, Kalor, and a woman named Opal Tometi, have maintained their organization's mission to be this. Are you ready? Quote, eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. Like Antifa, 
Black Lives Matter, has become a movement to essentially dismantle America. And anyone standing in their way or even questioning their motives is instantly branded a racist. Among others wreaking havoc in America right now are thieves, independent anarchists, socialists, communists, and internationalists who would relish nothing more than the destruction and transformation of America. But again, at the top of the food chain, there are people in those high places calling the shots, directing the funding, providing the lawyers to defend those who find themselves in the crosshairs of traditional justice. These folks at the top are the most evil of all, and they're seeking to use this crisis to their advantage. And in my opinion, and I'll try to prove this in just a moment, they are the biggest racists of all. They are the eugenicists. Right now, I'm at the website nogenetics.org, K-N-O-W, genetics.org. In their opening sentence, they simply tell us eugenics is a movement that is aimed at improving the genetic composition of the human race. Okay, sounds reasonable. A few sentences later, we're told, in 1883, Sir Francis Galton a respected British scholar and cousin of Charles Darwin, first used the term eugenics, meaning well-born. So in other words, eugenics originally meant well-born, well-put-together, the right stuff. Galton believed that the human race could help direct its future by selectively breeding individuals who have desired traits. Desired traits, his words. So the eugenics movement, and I'm back to the website now, the eugenics movement began in the United States in the late 19th century, the 1800s, of course. Eugenicists in the United States focused on efforts to stop the transmission of negative or undesirable traits from generation to generation. Hmm. Negative or undesirable traits. Eliminate them from being sent generation into generation. Back to the website. In response to these ideas, some U.S. leaders, private citizens, and corporations started funding eugenical studies. During the 20th century, a total of 33 states had sterilization programs in place. While at first, sterilization efforts targeted mentally ill people exclusively, later the traits deemed serious enough to warrant sterilization that included people with alcoholism, criminal chronic poverty, blindness, deafness, feeble-mindedness, and promiscuity. It was also not uncommon for African-American women to be sterilized during other medical procedures without their consent. Now, let me introduce you to the founder of Planned Parenthood. (laughs) 
Her name is Margaret Sanger. She was born in 1879. She died in 1966. She is the mother of the modern birth control movement. She was a eugenicist. There have been unearthed videos, actually film, from 1947 of Margaret Sanger demanding, quote, no more babies for 10 years in developing countries. A couple of years ago, Margaret Sanger was named one of Time Magazine's 20 Most Influential Americans of All Time. Given her enduring influence, it's worth considering that the woman who founded Planned Parenthood contributes to this day to the eugenics movement. Planned Parenthood still celebrates this woman despite all that I'm about to tell you. Sanger shaped the eugenics movement in America and beyond in the 1930s and 1940s. Her views and those of her peers in the movement contributed to a compulsory sterilization program that produced laws in 30 states that resulted in more than 60,000 sterilizations of venerable people, including people she considered to be feeble-minded or idiots or morons, as she described them. Margaret Sanger was even a featured speaker at a KKK rally in 1926 in New Jersey. She recounts this event in her autobiography. She says, quote, I accepted an invitation to talk to the women's branch of the Ku Klux Klan. I saw through the door dim figures parading with banners and illuminated crosses. I was escorted to the platform and was introduced and began to speak. And in the end, I believed I had accomplished my purpose. A dozen invitations to speak to similar groups were proffered. That she generated such enthusiasm among some of America's leading racists says something about the content and tone of her remarks and her mission. In a letter to a woman named Clarence Glabel in 1939, Sanger wrote, we do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. I'm going to repeat this. This is a letter to Clarence Gable in 1939. We do not want word to go out that we want to exterminate the Negro population. And the minister is the man who can straighten out that idea if it ever occurs to any more of their rebellious members. So Margaret Sanger planned on using religious leaders within the black community as a foil to get to that community at large and exterminate their population. Now let's fast forward to 1957. This is an interview with Mike Wallace. Everyone probably is aware of Chris Wallace from Fox News. Mike Wallace was Chris's dad. He was a fixture on CBS News for decades. 1957, Mike Wallace interviews Margaret Sanger. And Sanger said, quote, I think the greatest sin in the world is bringing children into the world that have disease from their parents, that have no chance in the world to be a human being practically, delinquents, prisoners, all sorts of things just marked when they're born. To me, that is the greatest sin that people can commit. The 1973 U.S. Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, of course, affirmed that access to safe and legal abortion is a constitutional right. 
Roe versus Wade began in 1970 when Norma McCorvey, under the alias Jane Roe, hence Roe v. Wade, sued the state of Texas. She was represented by Dallas District Attorney Henry Wade over the Texas state law, which banned abortion except in cases of life-threatening conditions. McCorvey was unmarried, pregnant with her third child, and seeking an abortion. She initially claimed, claimed she had been raped, but had to back down from this claim due to a lack of record. There was no police report. Abortion had been officially outlawed in the state of Texas since 1854. McCorvey and her co-plaintiffs argued that this ban violated rights given to them by the 1st, 4th, 5th, 9th, and 14th Amendments. The attorneys hoped that the court would find merit under at least one of those areas when deciding their ruling. Seven of the justices voted in favor of Roe, and two were opposed. The initial outcome of Roe v. Wade was that states could not restrict abortion during the first trimester, defined as the first three months of pregnancy. The Supreme Court stated that they felt states could implement some restrictions in regard to second trimester abortions and that the states could ban abortions during the trimester, it was up to them. But what the court said was states could not restrict abortion during the first trimester. Due to the timing of the case and its path to the Supreme Court, McCorvey ended up giving birth to the child whose gestation inspired the case. The child was given up for adoption. Roe v. Wade was decided officially by the Supreme Court on January 22, 1973. And since then, are you ready for this? And since then, nearly 62 million babies have been aborted in the United States of America. Now, here's another shocker for you. Abortion impacts African Americans at a higher rate than any other population group. If you're hearing my voice crack a bit, it's because this subject is obviously, for those of you who have followed my career, near and dear to my heart. In the 90s, I ran, uh, co-led a organization called Brian's Kids. We used the airwaves of Channel 5 in San Francisco to highlight the life of a child in foster care each week. And over the course of 10 years, we saw 400 of those kids in foster care become adopted. They were of all different flavors all different ages, but 400 kids adopted. In fact, during that time period, my family grew because my wife and I made the decision to adopt children as well. So I become emotional when I talk about these numbers. I'm going to repeat that. Since Roe v. Wade, nearly 62 million babies have been aborted in the United States. We're talking about the deaths from COVID-19 this year. Guess what? Millions and millions of babies have been aborted this year in the United States of America. Last I checked a few weeks ago, it was about 13 million. It's sickening what's happening in this country. But let me take it to a different level here. Because abortion impacts African Americans at a higher rate than any other population group. In 2011, the Center for Disease Control... This is the most recent I could find from the CDC, released an abortion surveillance report. According to that report, black women made up, black women, I should say, made up 14% of the childbearing population. 
Yet 36% of all abortions were obtained by black women. Abortion is the leading cause of death among blacks. Now, those figures are from 2011. I can't imagine them changing much here in 2020. And can I tell you something? I believe the leaders on the left are proud of that figure. And I'll address that in a few minutes. Donald Trump was staunchly pro-choice, pro-abortion, until he sought to become president. From that moment on, a centerpiece of his campaign was a promise to do whatever he could to ensure that the 1973 Supreme Court's landmark decision on Roe v. Wade that guaranteed a woman's right to abortion would be overturned. Many of us were rightly skeptical of that proclamation. But can I tell you something? The man has kept his promise. Some say he's a hypocrite. He did anything to get elected. But quite frankly, I think, I think he's an example of God using the most unlikely character to accomplish his will on earth. God is not for abortion. Christians, of course, refer to this book as the Old Testament. Jews call it the Bible. In any case, I'm going back to the small book within the Old Testament— within the Jewish Bible, known as Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 5. God says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. The book of Isaiah, also in the Old Testament, Jewish Bible. Chapter 44, verse 24 says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. Psalm 76, 1 says, You are he who took me from my mother's womb. That's the psalmist talking to God. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. And I should also mention that history, even biblical history, is replete with unsuspecting characters, leaders, people, for some reason, standing up for righteousness. People like Donald Trump. How did he keep his promise regarding abortion? Well, the answer is not complicated. And the left is enraged by this, including groups like Antifa and others. He did it by consistently appointing judges to the federal courts that he believes are committed to the goal of overturning Roe v. Wade. Donald Trump has succeeded in reshaping the Supreme Court through his appointments of Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, and he has now appointed more than 100 judges to the Court of Appeals and the District Courts, many of whom have been openly hostile to abortion rights in their academic writings and their public speeches or judicial decisions. And now he expects these judges to achieve the biggest prize of all, overturning Roe v. Wade. And so much of what's going on right now is all about that. And since Trump's election, we have witnessed Alabama pass a law that forbids abortions at any time in a pregnancy, unless it is required to save the life of the mother. Even if the pregnancy resulted from rape or incest, the pregnancy may not be terminated without risking criminal prosecution of any doctor who participated in the procedure. That is pro-life. 
Seven other states have recently passed restrictive abortion laws as well. Let's now go back to 2016. Donald Trump had secured the GOP nomination, and he's being interviewed by Fox News' Chris Wallace. Again, isn't it interesting? 60 years before, Chris's dad, Mike, interviewed Margaret Sanger, Planned Parenthood's founder, about the very topic of abortion. Chris Wallace asked Donald Trump, do you want to see the court overturn Roe v. Wade? And Trump said, well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what it's going to be. That will happen. And that will happen automatically, in my opinion, because I'm putting pro-life justices on the court. And of course, he ended up doing just that. Now, let me take you to 2019. This is January 2019. President Trump issues an official proclamation lamenting the lives cut short by abortion. He said today marks the 46th year since the United States Supreme Court's decision of Roe v. Wade. On this day, we mourn the lives cut short and the tremendous promise lost as a result of abortion. As a nation, we must resolve to protect innocent human life at every stage. Friends, giving the statistics that I shared with you regarding African-American children killed by abortion, what President Trump said in January 2019 was a statement that proclaims Black Lives Matter. Now I'm going to quote to you from a very liberal website. It's Vox, V-O-X, Vox.com, February 4th. Quote, in less than three years as president, Donald Trump has done nearly as much to reshape the courts as President Obama did in eight years. Trump's done in three what Obama did in eight. Continuing here from the article, Trump hasn't simply given lots of lifetime appointments to a lot of lawyers. He's filled the bench with some of the smartest and some of the most ideologically reliable men and women to be found in the conservative movement. Long after Trump leaves office, these judges will shape American law, pushing it further and further to the right, even if the voters soundly reject Trumpism in 2020. It's called Winning. Now we move to early January of this year. 39 Republican senators and 168 representatives signed an amicus brief asking the Supreme Court to revisit and potentially overturn Roe v. Wade. The left's greatest hope is that they can win back the White House. They do not want this to happen. They will take advantage of every crisis possible to wreak havoc, stir up problems, crash the economy, whatever it takes to keep Donald Trump from being reelected. Right now, Joe Biden is their pick. Though, as you know from other podcasts, I believe if he were to win, he'd be a one-termer, to be followed by Nancy Pelosi's nephew, the governor of California, Gavin Newsom. And if Joe Biden loses to Trump, then it will be Gavin Newsom's turn to win the White House in 2024. 
now let me return to Vox. This is an article from Vox, which says Biden has promised that as president, he will immediately work to codify Roe v. Wade into law, which, when accomplished, will greatly help put American women's minds at ease. And he will only appoint judges who promise to respect judicial precedents. As president, Biden will also restore federal funding to planned parenthood. Now, let me tell you, friends, once again, what this is really all about. Margaret Sanger's eugenics creed is clearly stated in a speech from 1932. It's entitled, My Way to Peace. The centerpiece of this speech involves her program to use compulsory sterilization and segregation as a plan to retool America and bring about only the best in breed. The first class of persons targeted for sterilization in her speech and her plan is made up of people with mental or physical disabilities. The first step, she said, would be to control the intake and output on morons, mental defectives, and epileptics. The second step would be to take an inventory of the second group, such as illiterates, paupers, unemployables, criminals, prostitutes, dope fiends, and classify them in special departments under government medical protection and then segregate them on farms and open spaces. Those segregated in these camps could eventually return to mainstream society if they underwent sterilization and demonstrated good behavior. At the time, Sanger estimated that 15 to 20 million Americans would be targeted in this regime of forced sterilization and essentially concentration camps. You know, it seems as if Sanger got more than she dreamed of. Because, as I mentioned, there have been well over 60 million babies aborted since 73. Most of them from poor families. And the largest percentage, black. And you could argue that we do have concentration camps nowadays as well. We've got impoverished, low-income neighborhoods. And now, permanent homeless camps. And in fact, in the homeless camps, one can get for free alcohol, drugs. That's what's happening in California. In November, the Church of God in Christ unveiled its resolution on the sanctity of human life. I mention this church because it's the largest Pentecostal denomination in the United States, the Church of God in Christ has more than 5 million members. Overwhelmingly, these members are African-American and they vote Democrat. Abortion is genocide, according to the resolution. Abortion must end to protect the life of the unborn. The Church of God in Christ opposes elective abortions. This issue of personhood has haunted America since the Dred Scott, Plessy versus Ferguson and Roe v. Wade decisions. Just as slavery was overturned in America, Jim Crow was defeated and Nazi Germany was overthrown. It is our prayer, says the church, that the heinous industry of abortion will become morally reprehensible worldwide.
Again, I'm going to repeat that unpleasant statistic. Since 73, well over 60 million babies have been aborted. The largest percentage of those black children, African-American children, African-American deaths. More African-American babies have been killed by abortion than the total number of African-American deaths from all other causes combined. That comes to us from the U.S. Center for Disease Control and the Guttmacher Institute. Folks, we're talking eugenic genocide. I am going to take a moment to remind you of an interview that I did. It was episode 21 of Hidden Headlines with Ryan Baumberger. He was my guest. He's a young Christian man. He's black. He's founder of the Radiance Foundation. And he said, it's mystifying to me that even with decades of the results of undying devotion towards the Democrat Party, African-Americans still give the party of slavery, the party of Jim Crow, the party of separate and unequal, the party of unlimited abortion, their allegiance. Bomberger has a compelling story, by the way. Again, it's episode 21 of Hidden Headlines. He was conceived in rape, adopted into a multiracial family as one of 13 children, most of whom were also adopted. And now he and his wife are adoptive parents. And he says that because his foundation publicizes information that abortion rights advocates try to downplay, such as the fact that Planned Parenthood facilities are highly concentrated in neighbors with neighborhoods, I should say, with low income minority populations, he's often accused of being a racist. <laughs> do black lives matter? Of course they do. So did the lives of every human, including the babies in the womb. Abortion is murder. The goal of the progressive leftists in high places is permanently securing their power in a world that looks like them. Don't buy into the headlines. This is eugenics at work before our very eyes. And they're taking advantage of a crisis to stir up animosity and hatred to make sure the man in the White House isn't reelected to protect the abortion rights. One more thought. According to the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The left says this is an historic time of revolution. I say, and I pray, that this is an opportunity for a spiritual awakening. Brian Sussman, Hidden Headlines, Faith, Family, Freedom. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend. More on me at briansussman.com. And of course, there's my Facebook page, Brian Sussman Show. God bless you, my friends. And as I always like to say at the conclusion of these broadcasts, just as my callers used to say to me, I will now hang up on myself.